But man, uh, I've been I've been doing this for. I was thinking about this morning. It's funny that kind of all this is happening. I was thinking about it this morning as I was driving in. You guys know I'm kind of an emotional guy, so I get all teary-eyed while I'm driving. But I'm driving, and I get near the Wawa up the road here, and I start having this imaginary conversation. I don't know with who. I mean, I'm assuming it was Jesus. And I'm kind of talking about my life and kind of things that have gone on. I started to realize, wow, I've been doing ministry for about 12 years now, right? I got to see you know, a youth group in Atlantic City from 6th grade to 12th grade go, and I got to see um, uh, now this youth ministry from 7th grade to 12th grade graduate, and, you know, I've been really reflective. You know, I just turned 30 a few months ago. I've had my first son, and I'm getting real reflective and kind of, it's not a midlife crisis because I'm not at midlife, but I'm having some kind of crisis. You can pray about that for me. But as I'm driving, I'm like, wow, 12 years of being in full-time ministry, 10 years of uh, you know, being some kind of pastoral role. And I just got emotional. Uh, this is not in my notes, this is all free. Um, I got emotional while I was driving. I was thinking like, God, you've seen me through so many things. You've seen me through the ups, you've seen me through the downs, you've seen me through the I don't knows. And that whole time, you know, I've always was just reading God's word, reading God's word. Something that's been consistent since I started in ministry is that you've got to talk about it, meaning you've got to read it. And I've been reading God's Word for years now. But over the past few years, you know, since 2020 and now, I don't know why, I don't know, I have this new sense of urgency and I start to read the Bible kind of through a different lens and I kind of challenge myself to look at the Bible with these fresh eyes. And I know many of us in this room mostly have grown up in church reading this book, hearing the stories through Veggie Tales or learning it in CB Kids or on a Sunday school. And other of us, others of us like me, you know, we learned the Bible a little later on. I really didn't know anything of it or understand it until I started going to youth group when I was in middle school. But I know for some here, you are just beginning to look at the Bible for the first time on your own. And if we were honest, it's a crazy book, isn't it? It's, it's pretty, pretty wild when you read it. I've grown up hearing the stories of Noah and Moses and even Jesus, and it's easy for, to forget the craziness of it all. Right? We talk about Noah like it's this little cute story of God saving the animals. Right? I, I was reading, Judah, my son, has this little crinkle book. I was telling the youth group about this on Wednesday. He has this little crinkle book, and I'm reading the story of Noah, and it's just like, God used Noah. He saved the animals. It ended all cute. And then I'm thinking, man, when he reads this, when he's a teenager, he's going to lose his mind. He doesn't know that millions upon millions of people are dying under the water. Why would we make this a children's book? We think about Moses, like we did in this series. Come on, think about it. How crazy is it? Moses gets to talk to God, and God is this burning bush. And he's having this chat with a bush that's on fire, but really not burning. And he's saying, you can't use me, God. I don't talk right. I don't have this right. I don't have it all together. I can't do it. Please send somebody else. And God's like, fine. I can still use you, but fine. Go get your brother and work with him, and we'll see how that plays out today. But when we are in youth ministry or kids ministry and we first hear these stories, what do we think? We don't think about the people drowning under there. We don't think about why the bush is on fire. We just go, wow, my God can do anything. Come on, we hear about it in CB Kids. We hear about it in youth group. We hear these stories of a flood or parting the Red Sea. And we're like, wow, my God can do anything. My God can beat the boogeyman and we'll sing about it. But something happens along the way. 
We read these stories over and over and over again, and we become so familiar with them that we begin to forget how amazing God is, and we start to pick it apart almost a little too much, if we were being honest. We try to understand every little word and try to figure out in Hebrew and then the Greek and then what's it saying here and how it applies to us and reading ourselves into it, totally losing focus of how amazing God is. I heard one pastor describe it this way. The pastor reads this great old passage that everyone knows. And it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I was reading this story. Thanks for crying, Brandon, at that passage. I'm reading that, man. I saw, you know, we're reading nursery rhymes to Judah and stuff, and I'm thinking, like, isn't Humpty Dumpty an egg? Where in this awesome passage does it say that Humpty Dumpty is an egg? We all know this one, but the pastor goes on to say, really look at it. Think about it for a second. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, had a great fall, all the king's horses, all the king's men. How in the world can a horse put anything back together? They don't have fingers. But yet, it's in there. And you know what? As adults, you know, a kid hears that and goes, wow, that's awesome. The egg makes it in the end. We are like, how can a horse put anything back together? And we start to miss the point of the story. We start to pick it apart. Like, what does he really mean that the horses put Humpty back together again? And we start to pick it apart. And it's like, well, what does it really mean about Humpty? What's the exegetical meaning of Humpty Dumpty? And we start to do it and we ruin the rhyme. Because it wasn't about the king's horses and how that works out. It's about this Humpty Dumpty falls and gets put back together again. And sometimes we can do that with God's word. We pick it apart rather than studying it to understand it, but we pick it apart to get so obsessed with trying to dissect how horses can put things back together that we forget the point of the story. Now, I'm not saying we're not meant to read the Bible. That's clearly not what I'm saying, so don't tell people I said that. And I'm not saying we're not meant to study it. But I'm saying sometimes... We have to remember why we read Scripture. We have to remember what the main point is and who is the main character. Because this book, this very important book, is one unified story pointing us to Jesus. It's not about us. We get a part in it, and that's pretty cool. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. See, we've been in this series called The Story of Moses where we've been going through his life and seeing what we can learn from him and ourselves, but more importantly, what we can learn about God. And I love how we get to hear Pastor Jimmy, but how also we heard from people like Jeremy and Becky. But about a year ago, I was really excited when we, we talked about we're going to do this Moses, because about a year ago, I remember sitting, trying to read through the life of Moses with these fresh eyes. I must have read the story a dozen times about how he was put in a basket and how he goes to Pharaoh singing, let my people go, and how he talks to a bush and parts the Red Seas and wanders around the desert. But think about all the things we've covered so far, discussing how God's amazing and does amazing things and how even before we're born and even before Moses is born, he saw his life. We see how Moses grows up struggling with his identity between being a Hebrew and then being raised an Egyptian, but not really fitting in any place. Moses builds a life for himself and then has this crazy conversation with God in the form of a burning bush, telling Moses to go free his people from Egypt. Then seeing all the miracles and plagues that God causes in Egypt to show Moses and to show the world that God's a name to be reckoned with. We learn that God is bigger than our boogeyman. And last week, 
Becky talked us through how Moses learned to delegate and find rhythms in his life by talking to his father-in-law, Jethro. And how we also need to examine ourselves of, of what we're, if where, we, we are, where are we doing too much and what are we going to do with our gifts when we're serving and how are we going to grow the kingdom of God. But today, will you join me in looking at these stories of Moses as if you've never heard them before? Will you look at the life of Moses but would you truly focus on the main character? Here's my request for you. I know we've had distractions this morning. I know we have thoughts on our mind, things that we're working on from the week, but let me ask you this. Here's my request. Will you stick with me till the end? I know we're running already a little over time, but will you stick with me till the end? Because I know what I'm like when I'm sitting where you are. I'm always, okay, I'm tracking with you. Good sermon. All right, all right, cool. And then squirrel, I'm now thinking of something else. Or I'm sitting there going, okay, man, when's this going to end? Jimmy's kind of taking a long time. And we get to this point where we're like, we're listening, we're listening, we're listening. And then we get to this moment where we're like, wait, what are we talking about again? So let's look with fresh eyes. Please stick with me to the end. Because today's passage is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and this week I've read it over and over again, not to pick it apart, but to really see what's going on here. So will you pray with me? And while we pray, could you just extend your hands out like this? Just open them up. Jesus, today we come to you open-handed. Holy Spirit, give us fresh eyes to see. What do you want to speak to us? Let it not be man. Let it not be Will's opinion on Scripture, but may it be your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you turn with me to Exodus 19? At this point, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're on their own now, just them and Moses and this promise of God. Right here, and then it starts this, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, it says, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. And after breaking camp at that word, don't know how to say it. They came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So it's been two months since Egypt, which doesn't seem like a long time, because spoiler, they're going to wander for like 40 years. But two months in the desert, living in tents, not knowing how long it's going to be is a long time. Sorry, Caitlin, I know you're going to live in a tent for a while. Anyway, verse 3. Stick with me, guys. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to its descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You, have see, uh, you know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. Moses. Moses goes up the mountain. Now everything is about to change. He goes up the mountain, and he stands before God, if you can even imagine that. And God says, you saw it all right. He's like, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I saved you, and I brought you to myself, and I want to make you my own special treasure. And then he tells them, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you'll be my people. You'll be my kingdom, my holy nation. 400 years as slaves, beaten, overworked, holding on to the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now God is going to make them into a nation from slaves to a nation. This is a huge deal. From he says, if you just obey me and keep your word, I'll keep mine. What do you think their response was? Look at verse eight. It says, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses went up the mountain. 
This is awesome. I mean, God, the one who has the whole earth belonging to him, wants to have a relationship with his people, and he calls Moses up this mountain and tells them they need to prepare themselves because this is a big deal, and this is a moment, so tell everyone to get ready. Take a look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on that third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all people watch. Mark off a boundary around the whole mountain. Warn the people, be careful, do not go up to the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will clearly or will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them, shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up the mountain. Now, this is serious. When I think what we just read, God is going to come down, and the people are going to finally hear this invisible God speak to Moses. This is going to establish Moses as the leader. This is another way God is showing them that he isn't just some false God, but he's the one true God. Think about it. Right now, what if I told you that in three days, God was going to speak and we all get to experience it? I feel like we'd be jaw-dropped. We would not be able to think. You wouldn't go to work. You'd be like, I gotta go home and just get ready. I don't know what getting ready is, but I'm gonna hear and meet God. What would you do? What would you think? The people are told to wait three days, wash up, and prepare themselves. Then Moses is to mark off a boundary around the whole mountain, and if anyone even touches the mountain, touches the boundary, or crosses it, they must be put to death. A little harsh. What does this tell us about God? He's holy, meaning he's set apart. He's perfection. He's powerful and he's serious. And he puts this boundary around the mountain and says, do not cross this. Do not cross this. It would be better for you to be dead than cross this line because God was going to descend upon this mountain. But let's be honest, how many of us would be thinking more about the boundary than we would be about God? Some of us would be terrified of it while others would start wondering, I can't cross the line. How close can I get to the line? Will the boundary be like this obvious red tape thing, or will it be subtle? And this is the part that gets me in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was this long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. And the Lord came down the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed up the mountain. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what the people were thinking and what they were feeling? Moses led them out of the camp to meet with God. This is what I dream about. This is what I desire. And God came down in the form of fire and smoke 
billowed and the mountain shook. Try and get that image in your head because it's kind of hard to understand. God is meeting with His people. Moses spoke and God thundered His reply. What would you be thinking in this moment? What would you be feeling? Remember, they were slaves. Now led to the desert, confused and wandering, and now God meets them in fire and smoke. Is this the God who goes before us? Is this the God who defeated the Egyptians? And God goes on to tell Moses to remember the boundary, make sure they know about the boundary because I am a holy God. And Moses goes up the mountain and here God not only reminds him about this physical boundary that's around the mountain, but God gives Moses a different set of boundaries in Exodus chapter 20. He gives him boundaries for our lives. You might know them as the Ten Commandments. Some of us can recite these. Some people in this room even memorize their order. I bet you can ask almost anyone today in our culture, and they'd likely be to be able to at least name a few. This is one of those passages that we read right through. So what if we read them with fresh eyes and listened to them, right? Listen to these Ten Commandments like we've never heard them before. Let's put ourselves in the moment for a minute in the scene like the original audience was, right? Imagine yourselves right now looking at that physical boundary, that God already set up, and now we're sitting, watching the thunder and the lightning and the smoke billow out of the mountain as Moses is talking up there with God. It's crazy. And now imagine Moses coming down from that fire-smoked mountain. We would all be like, what's he going to say? This is going to be the most epic sermon we'll ever hear. We're pumped. We'd be fixated on it. So Moses opens his mouth and tells us what God told him. I and the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make yourselves any idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. So we get it, right? We, we know we're in this century, so we know what they're thinking. They're, they're hearing it for the first time, but we know, okay, no idols. That's a good one. That's a basic one. We all can get that. Remember, fresh eyes, verse 5. We must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parent upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations for those who love and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will have a long life, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. It's different when you read it with fresh eyes, isn't it? This was new for them, but we have heard some of these, and most of us have grew up with them. But did we know how serious of a moment it was when God was giving these to the original people? Do we know how serious it was when he said, honor your mother and father, and then you will have long life in the land? Don't misuse my name because no one goes unpunished if they do. Do we treat it as serious as they heard it that day? That it was more than just saying don't have idols, but God will bless and give unfailing love to those who love him and obey him. But our sins can affect our entire family. Don't misuse his name, but we use his name as a curse word in our culture. 
What was going on while Moses was hearing this and relaying it to the people? What was this new people, this new form nation thinking? Verse 18. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast from the ram's horn, when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billow from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. And then Moses said, they said, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll, we'll listen. But, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. What an incredible scene. No longer are they looking at that physical boundary. They don't even mention it here. God put the boundary and warned them and again and again, don't touch it, I'm holy, don't touch it. And then he appears and shows a glimpse, a small glimpse of his glory and they back up. And they stand at distance in awe of God. I doubt anyone there was wondering how close they could get to the boundary now. In verse 20, Moses says, don't be afraid, Moses answered them. For God has come in this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. I find it fascinating sometimes how we like to be more focused on the boundary than we are of God. I mean, the physical boundary God set up already was pretty big deal, right? He's like, he kind of gave some serious, some serious warnings here. But God knew what he was doing when they didn't know what he was doing. But it's easy to see any boundary as a limit to our lives and try to push the limits of the boundary. But when we do this, when we're so focused on the boundary and trying to push the limits of it, we lose sight of why the boundary was there and what it really matters. I think this happens all the time when people pick up the Bible. Think about it. People view the Bible in so many different ways. Like we said earlier, they get so used to reading it over and over and over again that a lot of the times they start to see it as more of like a rule book and they lose focus about who it really is about. They see it as kind of like do's and don'ts of how to live your life. When we take our eyes off of God and put them on the boundaries, we get into these huge debates about things. Is watching this movie a sin? Or, hey, if I drive five miles over the speed limit, is that technically a sin? The boundaries we received are to protect us and our relationship with God. But now when we've read it over and over and over again, we sometimes can start to look at it more as a noose than as a relationship. Or we go the complete other way. We're so focused on the boundary and trying to figure out what we're missing because of it, we try and pick apart the boundary, looking for some kind of loophole, because then we can see how close we can get to the boundary before it's considered sin, and we tempt ourselves. Well, it's just harmless flirting. It's not really cheating on my spouse. It's just being friendly. Or I'm going to look at Instagram, that certain Instagram account, I'm going to look at it a little longer. Or, hey, we plan on getting married down the road. Is it really a sin if we sleep together now? Or maybe that third or fourth drink, eh, it's okay, I've had a stressful week. We start to justify why we cross the boundary. We begin to justify the different choices. We're so concerned about that, getting all we can out of life before we actually cross the boundary, and our eyes are on the boundary that our toes hit the edge. If we live life like this, we can begin to look at God and his word with such resentment. 
thinking, how can a loving God put a boundary on his people? How can a loving God make such harsh rules? And how can he put limits on my life? But that's a total misunderstanding of God's love. His boundaries are there to protect us, not restrict us. But with our eyes fixed on the line, we begin to see how we just can't measure up, so we give up. But that isn't the point of the boundary. God is saying outside of this boundary, outside of this is harm, pain, sickness, death, and chaos. I'm giving you all this freedom to live with me and to have this relationship with me. And this is where real freedom is found. And this is where hope is found. And this is where true love is found. I've said it many times. Why do we put fences in our yards? Why do we tell children that when they're playing in the front yard, don't go past the driveway, don't cross the sidewalk? It's not because we're mean. It's not because we don't love them, but because we love them that we tell them, hey, don't cross the sidewalk. Here, it's safe. I have my eye on you. I can protect you. You are in my home where I have plans for you to mature and grow. Playing out in traffic is not as fun as it sounds. Where your eyes are focused really does matter. And what I love about this moment, when Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the people were focused on God. And when they see the image of the mountain and God speaking, they fear him. These boundaries make complete sense now. And what does Moses say? Don't be afraid. God's coming in this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning It's not about being afraid that he won't love us. It's about standing in awe of who God is. If you want to have good boundaries in life, stop being so concerned about the boundary. But be concerned about the God who put the boundary there. Trust the God that rescued you out of Egypt, met with Moses, and made the mountains tremble. When we look at God and make him our focus and make him our everything, this will come naturally. When our relationships or when our relationship becomes the focus of our mindset, when we're like, I'm just focusing on me and God, I'm just focusing on me and God, we stand back in this awe of him because we are humbled and we become thankful. We know our place in our relationship with him and we know our place in this world and then we begin to worship him. This morning when I was driving, thinking about how God has led me through so much in just a short 12 years, I started to get emotional because I was thinking, wow, you really are good. You really are who you said you would be. You've led me when I was wandering. But when we take our eyes off of God, that's when chaos comes. And this is the story of Israel in a nutshell. These people are in all of God and they say, we will do whatever you ask, God. We'll do everything you've asked. And they become his people and he becomes their God. And Moses continues to go up the mountain and receive instruction from God. He goes up the mountain several times in the book of Exodus. And now they're in this loving relationships and they've gone from slaves to a nation, God and his people. But one of the times God calls Moses up the mountain, he calls Moses and his assistant Joshua up, and they're going to spend the time with God for 40 days. That's a long time to be up in a mountain. And Moses has led them out into the desert, and he's getting the law, and now he's hanging out with God on the mountaintop. But the people begin to get a little impatient. In Exodus 32, it says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that's Moses' brother. He said, come on, they said, make us some gods that will lead us. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. 
Here, they are waiting on Moses and begin to see the justifying, right? You begin to see the justification happen. We, we know we've all done it in some way or another. Moses goes up the mountain and the people go to his brother Aaron and say, come on, man, make us some gods. Everyone else that were, that were marching around, they all have gods they can look at. And we're out here, we can't see our God. We're just wandering. And that guy, Moses, right? He says, they say, that fellow Moses, they don't even know who he is, is taking forever. They are now losing focus on the God who saved them. The God they met on the mountain, and now they're looking back on themselves. So Aaron agrees and takes all the gold rings and the gold earrings from the people that they've taken from Egypt, and he melts it down, and he molded it into the shape of a calf. You guys probably remember the story. And he says in verse 4, When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are our gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They saw him make it. Gets the gold rings, throws it in a fire, makes it a little baby cow, and goes, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Verse 5, Aaron saw how excited the people were, so they built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning, sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting, drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Oh, how they have forgotten. The God who descended on the mountain, who saved them. The one that they were standing back in fear of, in awe of. And now they justify their crossing of the first command because, well, Moses isn't showing up. This is his fault. It makes sense why I would go make my own God. And they make themselves a God and give credit for everything. They cross the boundary. Remember the promise. Obey my commands and I will be your God and we'll have this loving relationship. And they broke it. When they take their eyes off of God, chaos comes. And this is exactly what happens. Remember, Moses is still on the mountain. So God then tells Moses, Moses, your people who you let out of Egypt, right? God calls them Moses' people because they don't want God anymore. They've made themselves their own God because they've crossed the boundary he set up. And he says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm no longer on their side. Moses, step aside. I'll make you a great nation. I'll use you later but I got to deal with these people who've rejected me. So Moses and Joshua come down to see all that's happening. They're concerned now. They come down, and as they're approaching the camp, Joshua's worried. He hears these sounds, and he's kind of worried about what's going on. It says this in verse 17. When Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below him, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war is happening in the camp. Something, we got to hurry up, Moses. Something's happening down there. We got to go save them. But Moses replied in verse 18, no, it's not a shout of victory, nor is it a wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of celebration. It wasn't war. It wasn't victory. It wasn't defeat. They were celebrating their new God. They were celebrating their sin, celebrating themselves. So Moses, with the Ten Commandments in hand, smashes it in front of them, symbolizing how they just blew through the boundary. And Moses is angry. So he destroys their God, and he beelines it to his brother. He goes, what have you done? And Aaron responds, just like the people, don't get upset, my Lord. You yourselves know how evil these people are. He begins to justify it. You know how evil they are. It was them. You get it, man. It's hard to lead a people. The, the, the golden calf just, it just happened. I threw it in the fire and then boom, a calf pop, popped out. That's not how it works. We can sit here and think, how can they let it get so bad? How can they drift so far so quick? It's because they took their eyes off of God and looked at the boundary. But how many times do we do this? make our own gods and idols because we're tired of waiting. 
We take our eyes off the splendor of God and sacrifice to these lesser gods. We sacrifice a lot of idols of money and status, right? Just a couple more hours at work, just a couple more promotions, a little bit more money. We worship relationships as an idol. We put so much weight into what others think of us and find our value in them. Every time we cross the boundary that God set up, or we've established, we sacrifice our dignity to that idol. We made sports and media an idol. We get more excited about meeting people we see on TV or in movies or on the field than we do about meeting with Jesus. We sacrifice our attention and give it to idolized people who don't even know our name. All sin comes from us crossing a God-given boundary somewhere in our lives. When we cross the boundary, sin and shame come in and we enter into chaos. When that happens, it's like we get this haze that just goes over our eyes. And worship is just another thing to get through on a Sunday morning. We listen to the sermon, and eh, it's just boring. We begin to give this lip service to God and long for services like Sunday morning or Wednesday nights or whatever time you worship just to kind of end. And we leave unchanged. Moses then tells the people, okay, it's, it's time to make a choice. Who will be with God and who will reject him? And that's the question I think we all have to ask ourselves. We are all faced with this question. And some of us have chosen to follow the Lord and praise God that we have. And some of us have chosen to not follow God. And some are here riding the fence, going through the motions, seeing the boundaries, but pushing them all because we're more concerned on what we, be, what we would be missing out on in life. Your eyes are on you. And Moses asks, are you on the Lord's side? I love how Exodus 32 ends. It says, Moses gets up, says to the people in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. Right? In some translations instead, it says, instead of saying obtain forgiveness, it says, perhaps I will be able to make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes up the mountain to plead with God to get forgiveness for the people. And he walks up the mountain to obtain forgiveness for these people. But he can't. Moses cannot atone. He cannot obtain forgiveness because this moment was pointing to what was to come. Moses was a sinful man too. He cannot obtain forgiveness for humanity, but he was pointing to something greater. He was foreshadowing to someone who one day would walk up the mountain, who would be able to atone for the sins of the people, who would take it a step further and would be able to obtain forgiveness, not just for those people then, but on all who call upon his name in history. God cared so much that he came himself and he sends his one and only son, Jesus, to carry the cross for our sin and our shame up a mountain to take the penalty for our sin, to take our shame and obtain forgiveness. And this forgiveness, it's awesome. I don't understand how it all works, but it goes throughout history, past, present, and future. The people who believed in the promised one to come back in Exodus will have their sin forgiven. We who call upon the Lord and believe wholeheartedly that Jesus came and died for our sins will be forgiven. And those who come after us, who call upon the name of Jesus, will have their sins forgiven. Amen? 
That somehow the same God who descended upon the mountain in fire comes in the flesh and dies on a cross for us so that we who were enemies of God, right? That's what scripture says. That either we're with God or we're enemies of him and those who were enemies of God, who were dead in our sin and in our shame could come back into a relationship with this loving God. Before in Exodus, God came on the mountain and put a boundary around it so people wouldn't approach him. But because of his love for us, he sends Jesus and he removes the boundary. Not only can we approach him, but his spirit will dwell inside of us and never leave us. On our best day in the world, God is there. But in our lowest moments, when we're broken and alone, we're not really alone. He's there. We sometimes look back and go, wow, if only I could have been like the Israelites, if only I could have seen God descend upon that mountain that day, I would never doubt. But I think they would look at us and go, wait, the God of the mountain somehow dwells inside you? And he promised to never leave you. And somehow the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within us? It's not about the rules. It's not about trying to get everything right. It's about focusing on God. It's about standing in awe that we broke our promise. We fell short. We sinned. And our God came and gave up his life and rose again so that we can be in relationship with him. That you and me, no matter how messed up we think we are, no matter how much we've sinned, no matter how many mistakes we made, God loves us. May we stand in awe of that God. May we stand in awe of that God who comes to save. And when we focus on him and his grace and his mercy, it won't be about the boundaries. Our hearts will change from the inside out because we're not focused on what we can or can't do, but we're focused on him and what he has done for us. Amen. When we focus on him, worship becomes more full. We sing the songs no matter how many are in the band or if the lights are on and off, that's in my notes, or if the microphones don't work. If there's a few people or a thousand, we are just singing and it feels so wonderful because we are standing in awe of him. And we get to, I get to sing of your reckless love. I get to sing that you're my firm foundation and I can trust in you. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, small group, serving together becomes such a joy because we begin to love to gather with his people and just worship together. When we stand in awe of God, when we stand in awe of him, it's like the haze leaves our eyes and we see God's glory so clearly. And it will become easier and easier to obey when we're standing in awe. I love what it says in Psalm 119 in verse 9. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I've recited aloud all regulations you have given us. I rejoice in your laws as much as in your riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. And I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. When we focus and we stand in awe of who he is, if we focus on him and his character, we begin to delight in his commands. We begin to delight in his words. We stand in awe of God and all of the boundaries and everything just follows through. God will guide us. God will show us. And if we obey and pursue his word, we will continue to be in awe of him. Church, may you read this book with fresh eyes. 
May we love God and obey his commandments. Let me ask you today, when was the last time you looked at who God is and looked at his story and stood in awe of the God who saves? Church, may we stand in awe of him. You know, that's why I love about communion and, you know, we have them on the sides here. And the way we do it here is when, when you're ready, I'll, I'll pray and you just walk up as a family and you just, you break it and you dip it into the glass or uh, we have some gluten-free ones or some packaged ones if you're a little nervous about, you know, getting sick and germs. But communion's such a beautiful thing. It's the story of Jesus and how Jesus broke his body for you and he poured his blood for you as a sign of the forgiveness of sins. I don't know how it all works, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is my body. The drink my blood for your sins. See, so you could live and know you are forgiven. These are the moments, people. These are the moments, church, that we sit here and we go, God, I'm in awe of you. So let's stand up together. I'll pray and then the table will be open and just sit and reflect on who God is. I'll give you a couple minutes to gather your elements, and then I'll pray us out. Jesus, this morning, we stand in awe of you. We think about the sacrifice you've made. We think about what you did by you climbing up that mountain and taking our sin and our shame. We weren't worthy. We broke our promises. But you died for us to have a relationship with you and rose again to prove that. Jesus, I know there's people in this room and I know it in myself that sometimes I'm so focused on the boundary that I begin to think of myself as less than. That I'm too messed up for you. I begin to think that you can never use me for anything. That people will think I'm a fraud. How many of us in, that, in this room today feel that way? But you don't call us frauds. You don't call us liars. You call us children. May we walk in that forgiveness, God. And right now, God, we picture you on that mountain and we say, we are in awe of you. Thank you for the bread and the drink. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.